lytter til live fra det Kongelige Bibliotek. Mit navn er Lise Barkhansen. I denne podcast skal du møde Nobelprisvinderen Abdul Razak Gønner. Gønner er født på Zanzibar, men bor og arbejder i England. Han har udgivet 10 romaner, og han er professor emeritus og har undervist i postkolonial litteratur ved Universitetet i Kant. Det svenske akademis begrundelse for, at han fik Nobelprisen lød. Han får Nobelprisen for sin kompromilløse og medfølende udforskning af virkningerne af kolonialismen og flygtningens skæbne i kløften mellem kulturer og kontinenter. Af samme grund har vi bedt den danske forfatter Carsten Jensen om at interviewe ham på selve aftenen. Carsten Jensen er nu trætlig advokat for flygtninges forhold i Danmark, og så er han jo også forfatter til talrige romaner, essays, artikler og rejsebøger. Blandt andet Vi de druknede og Den første sten, som er blevet oversat til en række forskellige sprog. Jensen har i øvrigt de seneste år udgivet en serie debatbøger Kældermennesker mod stjernerne og hovedspringere. Både Carsten Jensen og Abdul Razak Gønner får i løbet af samtalen dykket godt og grundigt ned i mange af Gønners bøger og talt karaktererne i hans fortællinger igennem. Hvad er deres motiv, og hvorfor handler de, som de gør? Tilbage står spørgsmålet. Hvad vil du selv gøre, hvis du stod i den situation? Rigtig god fornøjelse. Thank you for the introduction and thank you for being here. It's wonderful to see a, such a big room being sold out. And first of all and most importantly, congratulations with the Nobel Prize. Thank you. So uh, I was thinking we could start with your first book in Danish, the one that was also available shortly after your receiving the Nobel Prize, which is Paradise. Why is it called Paradise? Because when I read it, I didn't find much of Paradise in it. Paradise, as a word that enters into different languages, has its origins in an old uh, Iranian language. <clears throat> And what it actually means is a walled garden. Not the kind of garden you and I have, but the kind of gardens that kings and emperors have. So in other words, really a kind of a park uh, which is walled, um, and in it would be a recreation of uh, paradise. Um, and the description, there are very few descriptions of paradise in, in the Quran, but the few descriptions that are there and that I expanded on in various commentaries in, suggest that there are rivers in paradise, possibly four, um, and that um, there are various kinds of uh, plants and flowers. It's a green environment. So this walled garden would have flowing water, would have um, bushes of various kinds, etc. Et This word works its way via Greek into an idea. In other words, what this was, was creating paradise on earth. So the walled garden is a paradise on earth. So it's a, a humble uh, recreation, of course. The word finds its way into Greek, and then finds its way into Latin, and then eventually finds its way into every language where it becomes. Almost every language has this word, paradise, in various forms. So when I, when I was uh, thinking about um, Paradise, my novel Paradise now, I was thinking of the garden. In, uh, in fact, the alternative title for the novel was going to be The Walled Garden. So The Walled Garden is both a place of aspiration and ambition in the way that I've just described, but it's also a place for, as in the case of the novel, a place where people and people's lives are circumscribed. The woman is enclosed, the child is, works in the garden. There's a slave who actually nurtures this garden. So this is not really, an, uh, uh, as it were, an earthly paradise. So on the one hand is that. And on the other hand, there's all the, in paradise, there's the interior, the, the journey into the interior. 
Um, and here, then, the title becomes uh, an ironic reference to it is not paradise. It is actually the very opposite of paradise. So you can see it both as, um, as an ironic way of thinking about it is not paradise, but you can also see it as a way of thinking uh, here is a small attempt to, to make something bearable in an unbearable environment. There, there is in your novel another inspiration from the Koran, which is the main character, Yosef. Uh, in, in the Koran, there is a story about a Yosef who is sent to Egypt as a child, and he becomes the slave of one of Pharaoh's officers. And since he's very, very handsome when he grows older, uh, the wife of the officer falls in love with him and tries to seduce her, him. And the same story is repeated in your novel. Uh, Yosef is, is a very handsome boy, and he is taken away from his parents and sent to somebody he thinks is his uncle. But it turns out that it's not his uncle. It's a rich merchant who has borrowed money to his dad, and his dad is in deep debt and unable to pay back the money, and so he claims his son. And he is, without knowing it, he thinks he's a nephew of an uncle, but he is actually a slave. Yeah, well, I can perhaps qualify a couple of those. Um, I don't think slave is the right word. Well, he's owned by the... No, nephew. sure, 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 sure. But slave means owned completely. You know, in other words, slave is chattel. Slave does not have... Uh, a humanity. Slave is a belonging, like a cow, mm. or a house, or a car. He's, he's, shall we say, more like he's in bondage, rather than that he's a slave. Mm. Um, you may say it doesn't amount to the same thing, but, but on the one hand, being a slave means by law mm. you belong to this person. In his case, it's not by law, it's by some other sense of obligation. Uh, that he belongs to yeah. this man who he doesn't know, but who actually owes, rather his father owes him money. Uh, but of course it's not just a Quranic story, it's also the biblical story of Joseph, uh, in, uh, and of course also, uh, I presume, although I don't know, probably a Judaic story as well of the, uh, of the, of the Joseph. And Joseph uh, is... Um, you may remember, more or less kidnapped by his brothers and thrown away into a well in the, in the uh, biblical story, and then found and sort of uh, carried away by traders who trade him, blah, blah, blah. I simplified that, and I just had him given away in this way. But I was interested in, 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 the, in the idea of the boy more to begin with, anyway. Um, and I wanted to make an argument about how vulnerable um, children and women are in a, a mercantile culture like that. So the merchant and the father, the patriarchs, make these arrangements. The boy becomes security for the loan but then we discover that there is a wife in there as well, who's also, she's also a part somehow of uh, an agreement, a trading arrangement. So I was really trying to think about how it is that um, in a society like that, at that time, but not only uniquely so, how uh, patriarchal authority expresses itself through mercantile arrangements with other patriarchs. Um, <clears throat> I made the boy beautiful because I, I think there's something noticed that quite a few of your protagon male protagonists are very handsome. Yes. No, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> No, that's not true. This boy is beautiful. They may be handsome because they're just good people. You may have fallen for that. <laughs> no, this boy is beautiful because I wanted to suggest there's something about beauty that, that invites a kind of violence, uh, 
uh, uh, hostility or, in other words, uh, the, um, to make him vulnerable to um, this feeling of wanting either to possess or to diminish or in some way to, to crush, to destroy. Um, but he's not aware of this. He's not aware of, of the effect of his beauty. Um, he's not aware of very much. He's only a child. So that was one reason for wanting a Yusuf. And then when I made him so beautiful, I thought, ha-ha, he could be a dreamer as well. And that made the kind of link with the, with the Yusuf of the Quran or the Joseph of the Bible and so on. Uh, and Ankar Aziz then becomes like the merchant that you mentioned, or the officer you called him, but in the Quran it's a merchant. Um, the one curious thing which I corrected, uh, one curious thing is that in the biblical story, uh, Peter Potiphar, sorry, Potiphar is the figure in, in, in the Bible uh, whose wife tries to seduce Joseph. In the Bible, the woman is not named. She's just the wife who is lustful and indeed is shamed by her lust. In the Quran or in the stories attached to the Quran, she is named. She's a person called Zulekha. Um, and her story is much more complicated um, than the biblical story. And indeed, there are many variations of it. Um, so I wanted that as well, that it wasn't a kind of, so, so she believes, am I giving away too much of the book? <laughs> she believes that there is some kind of curse on her. And so for her, beauty also carries another meaning as a kind of a blessed person. So there you go. So there are all these kind of uh, variations and competitions between what you do, and in the middle of it is this boy who is, at first anyway, naive, uh, innocent, passive, and all these narratives are whirling around him. There, this is, takes place in the early 20th century, and there are the merchant who, to whom Yosef, in his, whose house he lives with his bondage, uh, is Arab, as far as I understand it. And there are also Indians, and then there are the Germans, who this is a period, and I have to confess to my lack of knowledge of, of African history. I saw there were only the British colonizing uh, Africa, and then there were the Germans in, in West Africa, Southwest Africa, where they were making a rehearse for Holocaust by exterminating whole tribes. But uh, they were also in East Africa, in Kenya. No, no. They are in, there, very not strong. In Kenya. Not in Kenya. Not in Kenya. They called it Deutsche Ost Africa. Mm -hmm. Kenya was the, when they drew these wonderful maps of theirs, was a British colony. In fact, it wasn't called Kenya. So Tanzania, they were there, right? The, Tanzania came later. They called it Deutsche Ost Africa. Yeah. And what is now Kenya, the British called British East Africa. These, these other words, Tanganyika, Tanzania, Kenya, came later. So at that time, the names on those maps that they made was Deutsche Ost Africa, uh, British West East Africa, um, I think it was um, uh, Portuguese Oriental and Portuguese something else. So everything was named in their names. These places didn't have names. So there is a, a passage in the novel where the young Yosef is taken with his so-called uncle on a trading journey deep into the territories far from the sea. Mm -hmm. And the Africa he experiences there is also a very violent Africa. And most violent, and the trader himself is heavily armed. And then the Germans appear as a kind of superior superior authority. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, that's how I imagine it might have been like. Um, I, I, well, I wanted to suggest that these were not straightforward, one powerful group against another. Um, nor did they speak each other's languages, nor did they fully understand each other. 
that there was some kind of negotiation taking place. These were traders. They saw themselves as traders. Uh, they were armed to protect themselves as they saw it. Um, but in any case, they were in fact being ripped off all over the place uh, as well. Um, so I want to suggest that there was some kind of difficult but um, negotiated sort of interaction between these traders from the coast and the interior, which they certainly didn't control. Um, and on the other hand, uh, as you remember, that uh, there were these stories whirling about the appearance of the Germans, or of the Europeans, actually, they're not named. And I should say very few, uh, there's very much, uh, very much was careful not to, to racialize this story. Um, but in any case, the, 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 the stories of the appearance of the Germans and their power, and they're all exaggerated. Um, well, because that's what people believed. Is it true that these people eat iron? Is it true that they do this? Is it true that they do that? And the, their implacability, their ferocity, their cruelty. Is it true? Is it true? Is it true? Um, so as these stories were kind of circulating, it signals, I, I was wanting to say, the beginning of the arrival of uh, colonialism. Uh, in some places for the first time, in some places they've already had some experience with uh, Germans or with Belgians or with the British even. Um, in any case, it's ultimately, ultimately there is an encounter. And the encounter is to say that there is now no more negotiation because now we are in charge. So the, the earlier part is to say that uh, people were not at peace, but they were kind of, you know, arguing amongst themselves and working something out. But once European colonialism arrived in this context, then there is no more conversation. There's only one voice that speaks now. And uh, Josef ends up realizing that Assis is not his uncle and that he is not somehow free and he starts talking to the other people working for Assis about freedom, and he has a conversation with the old gardener in that walled paradise, and, and uh, the old gardener says that freedom for him is an inner freedom, that nobody can ever take that away from him, and he's not interested in becoming free in the more kind of civil rights sense of the word, while the young Yosef uh, is. And he doesn't understand why nobody joins his idea of freedom and rebellion. Okay, well, uncle, he doesn't, I don't think, he's told, of course, from the beginning that he's, he's not his uncle by, by the young man. And uncle, very often in the culture I grew up in, is, um, is a term of respect rather than a term of relationship. Um, so all kinds of people become uncle so-so, uncle so-so. And I guess he's very young when he's first taken away and his parents would have referred to this merchant as he visits them as Uncle Aziz. Um, and he calls him that way because that's the term of respect that he's learned. And the, the other young man in the place where he works tells him he's not your uncle. He's not your uncle, you fool. He's not your uncle. Um, and um, at some point, you may remember, he says, why is it that we have so many uncles? Um, and the other boy says, they, aren't, they are not your uncles. Don't you understand, you fool? Uh, so the part of the education that he receives is to understand that this is, in fact, a term of respect rather than um, that is your uncle and therefore you have to be obedient. The only reason you're here is because your father messed up he tries to explain these things. He tries to make him grow up. I'm not sure <clears throat> what he learns from the old gardener. The old gardener who was a slave um, and was given to the mistress of the house as a wedding gift by her father. Um, and she offers him his freedom. And he, he couldn't care less because he says, I'm, I don't need for you to, to give me my freedom. I have my freedom. The very idea that you think you can own me 
is ridiculous. So I don't need for you to free me. I'm free. So it's not that he doesn't want to be free. He is in his own mind, never owned by anybody. He's free. And the reason he thinks this is because you, you can't stop me doing my work. I love my work. You can't stop me doing my work. You can't stop me worshipping. You can't stop me believing what I believe. What do I want your, your freedom for, is what he says. Okay, so this is not something Yusuf can share, because you have to be old, I think, to be able to believe something like that about yourself, that you actually cannot own me, do what you like. But that's something he hasn't learned yet. He's only about 16 or something when he's being told that. But perhaps he'll learn later. So I was thinking whether you could read that passage where there is a, a talk, a conversation, maybe not so much of a conversation, as much a confrontation between the officer and, um, and the young man. Uh, okay, so the officer and the relationship between the two is that he's what uh, in English is called a Batman. That is to say, he's still a soldier, but his... Uh, work mainly is to look after the, um, the officer in terms of making sure his uniform's clean, his shoes are polished and whatever. So he's a kind of like a personal servant but still uh, an office, uh, a soldier. So this is the officer speaking. What are you doing here? What is someone like you doing in this brutish business? The officer asked into the silence. I'm here to serve the Schutztruppe, the Kaiser, Hamza said, stifting to attention and looking straight ahead. Yes, of course you are. What nobler duty can there be, the officer said mockingly, coming round to face him. I suppose you could ask me the same question. What is a man from the lovely little town of Marbach doing here in this shithole? I was born into a military tradition, and this is my duty. That's why I'm here, to take possession of what rightfully belongs to us, because we are stronger. We are dealing with backward and savage people, and the only way to rule them is to strike terror into them and their vain Lilliput Majestat Sultans and pummel all of them into obedience. The Schutztruppe is our instrument. You are too. We want you to be disciplined and obedient and cruel beyond our imaginings. We want you to be thick-skinned, heartless braggarts who will do our bidding without hesitation. And then we will pay you well and give you the respect you deserve, whether slave, soldier, or outcast. Except you are not one of them. You tremble and look and listen to every heartbeat as if it is all a torment to you. I have watched you from the beginning, when they first brought you here. You're a dreamer. Hamza stood quite still, staring ahead. I pulled you out of that line because I like the look of you, the officer said, standing two paces in front of him. Are you frightened of me? I like people to be frightened of me. It makes me strong. The officer stepped forward and slapped Hamza on the left cheek, then slapped him with the back of his hand on the right cheek. Hamza gasped from the shock and after a moment felt his flesh tingling with pain. The officer was now only inches away 
And Hamza breathed in again the astringent and medicinal smell he had caught the first morning the Oberleutnant inspected the recruits. Only now he knew it was schnapps. Did that hurt you? Your suffering does not concern me, the officer said, standing very close to him. Hamza avoided eye contact and saw the stretched skin on the officer's temple ripple against his cranium. Answer my question, are you frightened of me? Diobana, Hamza said loudly. The officer laughed. I teach you to speak and read German so you can understand Schiller. And you answer me in that childish language. Now answer me properly. Javol Herr Lobelutan, Hamza said. And then to himself, Scheiße. The officer looked grim-faced at Hamza for a moment and said, you have lost your place in the world. I don't know why it concerns me, but it does. Well, perhaps I do know. I don't suppose you know what I'm talking about. I don't suppose you have any idea of the jeopardy that surrounds you. All right, go and do your work. As he turned away and walked towards the inner room, he said over his shoulder, get out and make sure all my gear is ready for the maneuvers. I read the final page in Paradise as, as an expression of his being lost. Sure, sure, sure. And I think the, the officer says something very essential about him. You lost your place in the world. And I think that goes for a lot of your characters. This is their problem. They lost their place in the world. And they are trying to find a new one with great difficulty. Okay, well, let me deal with various parts of that. <clears throat> so far as it being a continuation. Well, most definitely it is a continuation of the reflection on what would have happened to somebody like Yusuf. Um, I've said this in other places, so if you've heard me say this before, my apologies. But I wrote the ending of Paradise, uh, that was the first thing I wrote about that novel, as it were, in relation to that novel. Uh, in the meantime, I was uh, writing something else, so I couldn't do anything about that, so it had to stay as a, as a little episode in a notebook. Uh, that is to say, the recruiting drive at the end of Paradise. Uh, <clears throat> In the meantime, I was writing Dottie at that time. Um, have you got that there? Yes, we do. <laughs> and I'm going to ask you questions about it too. All right, okay. And I even have interpretations of it. <laughs> All right, okay. <laughs> that you might disagree with. Hold your horses. <laughs> Let me deal with this. Uh, so I was writing that. Um, and in the meantime, I was beginning to think, well, how did, how did this moment arrive? How did the moment of uh, this young man joining the colonial army, how did that arrive? And so thinking back about how that might have happened produced Paradise. There were other things as well to say what it was that kind of produced the impulse for writing Paradise, but let me not lose the kind of point as it were. Uh, anyway, so I did write Paradise, but in a different way. But the ending, the, sorry, the beginning now became the ending, which is that this is how, um, he tried in his desperation to resolve the dilemma that he found himself in as now a 17-year-old and what should he do. And he did that. Now, clearly, anybody who had any kind of sense of what it meant to do something like that, any kind of sense of what it meant to join a colonial army would say, you're making a mistake. Do you know what you're doing? Uh, but that's what, how it seemed to me. There is no, no other choice. Either I do that or I become, you know, a property, as it were, uh, of the merchant. He's young. He made that choice. Anyway, in, as I was doing other things and thinking about other things and writing other books, it kind of was always in my mind, okay, so what would have happened to somebody like him? Not him, but somebody like him. Mm -hmm. um, and so I thought he almost certainly would not have been unique 
in being in that position of being of a certain age, that conflict is building up, the armies are recruiting, young people, people joined up in these colonial armies. Some were coerced, but many joined up. And why would they have done that? Uh, did they do that as a mistake, like him, out of desperation? Did they do it because they were coerced? Did they do it for the prestige of being associated with a conqueror? Did they do it for the uniform? Did they do it for the money? Did they do it for adventure? Why did people do that? So in thinking about that, and in thinking about many things that are there in uh, afterlives, the consequences of that war, which is hardly known about, we've all, many of you have told me that, um, but which had enormous casualties, and it still was still seen as some kind of marginal event of no great importance. So I thought there's something to write about here. So, but in relation to whether it's a continuation, there is no attempt to deny that, but there is also no desire to say this is a sequel to it. The, the suggestion I'm making is that, in fact, there would have been other Yusufs, and Hamza is another Yusuf, that kind of thing. But really, my interest was not so much in what happened to Yusuf as an individual, but what would have happened to people who did the kind of thing. That's why we also have Elias, mm. who, in fact, is a different kind of uh, uh, recruit, if you like, to the colonial cause. Um, and also, that's why you have those people who say it's nothing to do with us. I don't know why you people are doing this. Don't you understand? This is about their wars. It's nothing to do with us. So it's a way of exploring that moment, uh, that episode in history from different positions, rather than simply to follow the story of a person like Yusuf. But Hamsi returns from the war, and in a way that actually your, your novel has, when it comes to Hamsi, a kind of happy ending because he does have a happy marriage. He marries the little sister of the disappeared Ilya and he also um, gets a lot of um, recognition as, as a carpenter. So in spite of he, him being lacking self-esteem, being lost, not knowing his place in the world, he does actually seem to find his place in the world as a husband, as a father, as a provider, as a carpenter. Yeah, well, you have to keep in mind that it's the German officer who says to Hamza, you have lost your place in the world. It's not, we don't have to take the officer's word for it that he has lost his place in the world. I'm very interested in the way that um, somebody like Hamza and others in many places that I write, how, how people uh, who are modest, people, small people, who go through difficult or traumatic experiences and might appear from a lofty position to be without recourse, or they have lost their place in the world, in that description of the officer. But who in fact are able uh, to retrieve something after that trauma, you've described it. So I wonder whether he had lost his place mm. in the world, or whether he had in fact temporarily had to contend with uh, difficulties or problems or issues in life, and that his experience upon his return is really how it is that he's able to retrieve something from that. I, I would prefer to think of it like that, rather than to believe that the officer's reading is that somebody like him, uh, or people like that, who have, um, you know, kind of encountered and experienced European violence or violence associated with European aspirations and ambitions, who have, in other words, become embroiled in issues that um, are not about them and have therefore kind of been forced into behavior or choices or whatever, that they have lost their place in the world. I think this is perhaps, uh, shall we say, a flattering misreading of the 
influence mm. of Europe when it encounters non-European people. And then there is uh, Ilyas, who it just comes across as a very strong character, mm -hmm. and whose destiny we first get to know by the end of the book. And maybe you don't want to speak about it because it's no, giving no. away the ending. No, I don't mind. <laughs> I, don't but, mind. I don't mind. But he's a very different character. Yeah. So that's another thing that I'm interested in, in this um, association, shall we say, of uh, colonized people with their colonizers. He, you said he, he ran away from home in your account. From, he let, we ran. In a way, it was like not intentional. He, he tries to describe this to his sister later on. He didn't really mean, he was like 10 or 11, um, and he didn't really mean to run away, but maybe he did, but he didn't, he didn't know. But in any case, he got caught by circumstances and was swept away by circumstances and could not return. So whether he really would have returned after wandering in the streets for a while, and anyway, he doesn't return. But what he does encounter is a different kind of German from the German of popular legends at the time. You have to remember, most of these people did not meet any Germans. It was just the stories that are told about them. But he really does, and this, you know, he, he feels uh, attracted to, if you remember, he also learns German songs and he feels attracted to, to the songs. He loves the music, he loves the language, he goes to school, etc., etc. And he wants to say, no, it's not true. They're not, they're not all these stories about their cruelties are not true. They're not true. So he's uh, like so many other people who are kind of attracted to, uh, to the British or the German or the French, you know, which is a quite a well-known phenomenon. He had a kind of loyalty, a kind of affection, a kind of alliance, affiliation to, um, to the Germans in this case, or to the colonial culture, civilization, language, music, and so on. So he didn't have any doubts about wanting to join the German army. For him, it was love. He loved the Germans. Um, so it's a different kind of relationship altogether. It wasn't, uh, we don't find out any more about him because he disappears from the story as a, as a presence, if you like, or as a figure, but he's there as a presence that's, People keep worrying about, is he alive, is he dead, where is he? And then we find him, in the end. or rather, we find his story in the end. And I think we'll leave that for the readers to. <laughs> I would like you to read the opening. So this is from the opening of Gravel Heart, and you don't have to explain the opening, because it's the opening. If you, if you picked up this book, this is what you would read, so <laughs> that's it. My father did not want me. I came to that knowledge when I was quite young, even before I understood what I was being deprived of, and a long time before I could guess the reason for it. In some ways, not understanding was a mercy. If this knowledge had come to me when I was older, I might have known how to live with it better, but that would probably have been by pretending and hating I might have faked a lack of concern, or I might have ranted in angry outrage behind my father's back and blamed him for the way everything had turned out and how it might all have been otherwise. In my bitterness, I might have concluded that there was nothing exceptional in having to live without it. Fathers are not always easy, especially if they too grew up without their father's love. For then everything they know would make them understand that fathers had to have things their own way, one way or another. Also, fathers, just like everyone else, have to deal with the relentless manner in which life conducts its business. And they have their own tremulous selves to solve and sustain. And there must be many times when they hardly have enough strength for that, let alone love to spare for the child that had appeared any old how in their midst. But I also remembered when it was otherwise, when my father did not shun me 
with an icy silence as we sat in the small room when he laughed with me and tumbled me and fondled me. It was a memory that came without words or sound, a little treasure I hoarded. That time when it was otherwise. Would have been when, would have had to be when I was very young, a baby, because my father was already the silent man I knew later by the time I could remember him clearly. Babies can remember many things in their podgy sinews, which becomes the, problems, the problem of later life. But it is not always certain that they remember everything in its place. There were times when I suspected that the fondling memory was an invention to comfort myself and that some of the memories I recollected were not my own. There were times when I suspected they were put there for me by other people who were dealing kindly with me and were trying to fill in the empty spaces in my life and theirs. People who exaggerated the orderliness and drama of the haphazard tedium of our days, who preferred that what came to be was signaled by what had passed. When I reached this point, I began to wonder if I knew anything about myself, because it was most likely that I only knew what people told me about how I was as an infant. At times, one person, one person saying this, and another saying that, forcing me to bow to the more insistent one, and occasionally selecting for myself the younger self I preferred. In admiring silence, and there is again the word silence. Mm. Um, but it's a different silence. Though. It's a different silence, yes. But this, here the protagonist uh, was, this, this secret he keeps in his relationship, he has a long-lasting relationship with a British woman, Emma, and uh, the secret he keeps is he does never tell her the truth about his childhood, because the truth was that his father abandoned his family, um, and there was no father, and he makes a kind of different story out of it. And, um, and he then says at a time, he calls himself a refugee from my life and talks about his disappointed love in England. Well, that's at the very end when he too is forced to return. I should say that the secret, the, the, the silence rather, not the secret, the silence is not only, um, he doesn't really know the full story of what happened to, to um, his mother and his father. He has a very confused idea of that. But the real silence is that he does not tell his people back home that he is, in fact, in a relationship, long-lasting relationship with an English woman. That's the silence. The silence, he does not say that, what, because they keep saying, his mother keeps saying, come back, you must get married, you're getting old, you can't live your life all alone, but he's not living his life all alone. No, they even just found, can't tell them. They have even found a woman for him. Indeed, well, a suggestion. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but he can't tell them. That's the, that's the silence, the silence uh, that he's not talking of. But then he's forced to return because, because he's told um, you know, that it's okay to return and there is somehow a pull that takes him back. And as he goes back, um, still keeping quiet, he's still silent about that. In fact, he's been living with somebody for eight years and that he has a daughter and whatever. So all these things are, this is a silence. But when he goes back there, he finds there's another silence he doesn't know about, which is what it is that had happened to his real father. So the person that he thinks was his father was in fact his, not his father, but his stepfather. Why is it called admiring silence? Because I just love this epigraph. Let me read it to you. He is an admirer of silence in the islands, broods over it like a great ear. 
has spies who report daily and had rather his subjects sang than talked. That's another silence, which is the silence in, imposed on people by the state, the silence not to speak about the things that trouble them. The other day in Lillehammer, we had a session when we were asked to talk about uh, freedom of expression. Well, that there refers to that kind of silence, because the novel is also about uh, how the state, so this is what he talks about when he goes back then uh, to his home, and he finds that, uh, that the uh, atmosphere that the state is kind of oppressively um, requiring silence. So it's a different kind of silence yet again. In the last skip, there's also a silence because the protagonist, Appa, uh, never tells the truth about his past. You'll notice if you read both books, you'll notice that the, there is a link between them. Um, and the link is um, that these two young innocents, as well, he, who becomes the father, Abbas, in The Last Gift, and who's the absent father there, uh, is a poor student and he lives in a little cubby hole or whatever, and as he looks across the neighbor's house, he sees uh, this also quite young, beautiful young girl, um, and he secretly watches her and sort of, as one does, and imagines fantasizes and this kind of thing. Um, I hope you haven't forgotten about that. When we used to do those kind of things. Um, and one day he actually sees that while she's out there, she takes a shift off as she's getting ready to go to bed and he actually sees her. And he thinks at, at some point, the, the merchant, the, the patriarch, glances towards his little cubbyhole and thinks he sees him. Um, so he thinks he's been spotted and he's terrified that he's been spotted. And then to his astonishment, um, he's, um, through various means, um, and a, and a marriage is arranged between this young woman and, her, and this young fella. Wonderful. So these two young people, what they have is just that pleasure of uh, kind of being young, falling in love, discovering themselves, their bodies, their sexuality, etc., etc. Um, but he's in, now living in a, the home of very powerful people, and she's very quickly pregnant, and he begins to have these anxieties. Had he been, in fact, as he were, recruited to cover up a shameful thing that had happened to this uh, this uh, girl, and in his own terror and anxiety and shame, he runs away because he thinks whatever he thinks, rightly or wrongly, that's how he decides to do this. Anyway, so off he goes, uh, and then the rest of Admiring Silence is really about, uh, as we've already seen, the, uh, the person who's in England who's in a relationship with a young woman who returns and then hears a version of this story from his mother. But in all of this, of course, we don't know what happened to that man who ran away to escape what he thought was uh, some kind of uh, trap that he'd been caught in. I thought about this for a long while after writing Admiring Silence and things go on and you do other things. But I remembered a conversation I had at the time when um, Paradise was shortlisted for the Booker, because that, when that happened, that was a time when I'd written three books by then, which had been reviewed here and there, and little, but you know, not, not, um, not um, very successful. Neither none of those three books made it into paperback even in those days. Uh, no, honestly, you can't imagine the pain of that, but anyway. <laughs> um, Some of us can easily imagine the pain yeah. of that. 
Anyway, when Faraday was shortlisted for the Booker, that made a great deal of difference to, to me and my writing because now people wanted to know and you know, they knew about me, etc. <clears throat> and I, I, was, I had a phone call at the university. Working in a university really kind of leaves you open to anybody who wants to find you. <laughs> you, can, you can't hide. These days, of course, emails, but anyway. In those days, it was telephone. So somebody phoned me and uh, said, um, I'm from Zanzibar, and um, I just heard that you are from Zanzibar and that your book is blah, 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 blah. And he said, amongst other things, he said, I've forgotten my language. I can't speak Swahili anymore. So I said, which I didn't really believe. I thought about it, but I didn't really believe that. Can you forget your language? But anyway, then he said, I left home when I was about 20 or so. Um, I stowed away on a ship and I've never been back. I've been a sailor for forever and I've done this and I've done that. And I said, why did you leave? But I wasn't really interested. I was just asking, you know, why did you leave? I said, I can't tell you, I can't tell you. Anyway, good luck, goodbye. Fine, thank you. I was very busy, so I wasn't interested in kind of even thinking about this. I was very busy because, you know, booker, 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 you know, so that kind of thing. But I did think about it for a while. And I guess I tried to imagine what might have happened to somebody like him. Um, so when I was, novels don't come for me anyway from one, from one impulse alone. They're always kind of complicated things as well. Uh, I was also thinking about the way in which um, sometime around about 2007, there were these people who did the suicide bombings in London. I don't know, some of you may remember that. And one of the suicide bombers made a video, um, as sometimes suicide bombers do, to explain why he was doing what he was doing. It was passionate, it was really angry. And what he said was that he had been brought up, he, his parents were of uh, Pakistani ancestry. And he said that what, what, what he, uh, he was brought up by his parents in a secular environment. They didn't teach him about Islam. They brought him up to be an English boy. Um, and he felt he had, something had been taken away from him, that he'd been deprived of something important to him, that he'd been denied something. That's why he's a Muslim, and that's why he's now going to go to London with a bomb in his backpack and blow people up, which of course doesn't make sense. But it made me think about how it is that uh, actions like that are done out of kindness, out of affection, out of kind of to protect uh, him from, you know, kind of alienation or estrangement or something, are actually uh, seen in a different way by the person who feels denied of his you know, heritage as well. So those two things I was thinking of, um, amongst other things, but certainly those two things, which is why the family, um, the, boys and, the boy and girl who end up being, in fact, you know, kind of properly anglicized as were in members of the English society, uh, but they don't know their parents' stories. Um, so anyway, thinking about that, I remember that moment of the girl taking her shift off, um, and I thought, this is my man. This is the one who ran away. That man who rang me. That's who he is. So then I connected it by using, if you, if you read both books, you'll find that that scene of the girl taking off her shift being the moment when the, the boy loves this person is repeated in both novels as a way of, as it were, hinting that maybe this is a guy, <laughs> you know, maybe this is a fellow who, and that's a shame. So it's a different silence again. It's, it's a silence which is to do with a shameful act, a, an act that he cannot now speak about. Um, he doesn't think. And again, it's done like the parents of that man, it's done to save his children from uh, a shameful story. He is a good father, he loves his children. Why, why do they need to know this about him? So, different silences, and they all have their own complicated, um, well, difficulties, I suppose. 
I wanted to talk about uh, refugees uh, because I read an interview with you by uh, the Reuters uh, agency where you talked about the present attitude in Europe towards refugees and you said you wanted more compassion and less barbed wire. And we are in Denmark, which when it comes to the treatment of refugees is one of the worst countries in Europe. Um, and uh, there's just a small passage in the novel By the Sea that I wanted to read. It's too short for you to read, so I'll just read it. <laughs> and this is the protagonist, who is not a young man. He is in his 60s. He comes to the UK from Zanzibar after having been detained in a camp for many years and in prison, and he wants to apply for asylum. And he's taken aside by a policeman uh, who then says to him, and this could be a Danish minister uh, talking like that. People like you come pouring in here without any sort of the damage they cause. You don't belong here. You don't value any of the things we value. You haven't paid for them through generations, and we don't want you here. We'll make life hard for you make you suffer indignities, perhaps even commit violence on you. Mr. Shaban, why do you want to do this? And this could be many well-known members of our present government talking like that, shamefully. Uh, and there's another quote from a, from a novel, Desertion, where, uh, which takes place, the first part, almost, a, well, more than a hundred years ago, and is an unusual, quite adventurous love story between an uh, um, English man and a local woman, um, and we don't really have time to go into it. And then in the second section, we meet a, a family in present day, or in the 50s, whose lives somehow become influenced by that adventurous love affair that took place half a century earlier. And there's one of the protagonists who talks about um, how he sees himself living in England as, as a stranger. And he says, um, the earliest lesson I received in London was how to live with disregard. It was the same lesson many of us had to learn in our different ways. Like many people in similar circumstances, I began to look at myself with increasing dislike and dissatisfaction, to look at myself through their eyes, to think of myself as someone who deserved to be disliked. And then I make a little jump. Um, I began to think of myself as, an, as expelled, an exile. I make it seem a gradual process, and indeed it took months for me to find the worst for the condition I was in, but I felt the sense of it a lot earlier. And I think so many immigrants and refugees today would recognize this feeling that you have expressed here. And now, actually, we've run out of time, but I think we should take another few minutes because I just want to hear you talk a bit about uh, Dottie. Look, 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 look. I know, but I'm <laughs> sure they will be very overbearing with us for two minutes. Because you mentioned Dottie yourself, and that is the only one of your novels which have a female protagonist. Mm -hmm. Um, and she is an unusual woman. In many ways, she resembles some of the male characters. She has low self-esteem. She's also, in a very feminine way, ready to sacrifice herself and her happiness for other people. But she's also unusual in the way that, and we are now sitting here in the big royal library with its huge collection of books, and she loves libraries. That is a free space for her where she can go and her, work, her world, which is otherwise very narrow, can expand. And she becomes uh, politically interested, too. And, and she feels that knowing about the world makes her also somehow leave her feeling of worthlessness behind. <laughs> and it, there even seems to be a love affair growing between her and a man at the end of the book. Um, 
So tell us a bit about Dotty. So that will be the final words. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Well, <coughs> actually, low esteem is not a word I would use for these people. That they, uh, I prefer to think that... You think modest? I think humble. Humble, yes. Yeah, rather than low esteem. Or modest, sure. Um, and I very often write, as I said, about uh, people who are like that, but in their modesty and their humility, uh, they do not think less of themselves. Okay, worthless is a good word in relation to that, because, the, because that too is part of humility. You know. um, and what they learn, and what somebody like Dottie learns, is that there are ways in, ways in which you can, uh, well, learn to like yourself better. So I would hesitate about a low self-esteem because, to be quite honest, it sounds to me like um, um, the kind of thing you'd read in a newspaper, you know, a bit of a cliché. So I prefer not to use it. But about Dottie <coughs> as the figure, and, um, I was actually, when I started writing that novel, I was interested in the younger brother in Hudson. Um, and uh, as I started to write it, I really found myself being more drawn to, to, uh, to the sisters, the two sisters, the older sisters, particularly Dottie, and how they might make something um, of their lives. I hadn't thought that I'm writing about a woman character, really. You know, I hadn't thought that this is the only novel I, I'm writing about a woman character. But it's true. Several people have pointed this out to me. <laughs> And it is true that that's so. Um, but uh, I guess I didn't think of it like that. I was just interested in how, um, as I mentioned earlier, how people who have gone through such difficult times can, can retrieve something of this. Uh, in Dottie, I also, uh, I was writing that at a time when I was very, very interested in the way um, uh, communities of, uh, I suppose, people with different ancestries, from di ancestries from elsewhere, um, made their lives in the UK. Uh, I don't, again, you know, I'm not, I'm not here talking about immigrants or migrants or that stuff. These are not straightforward words, noise refugees, noise whatever. But I'm thinking of communities of people who perhaps may have been there for several generations. Um, um, so if you remember, she starts off in Cardiff, or rather the mother starts off in Cardiff, where there is a, a sizable community of uh, non-European people who have been living there for several generations. So it was that community I was interested in, how people coming from that community uh, then find their way out of the, the, um, you know, the class oppressions that they are forced into. Um, I'll tell you what, as well, one of the things that I was reading at the time, um, and you'll see echoes of this in, in, um, in Dottie, one of the things I was reading at the time was um, Dr. Zhivago. Um, and that idea of a woman, not of course, Lara is not poverty-stricken young woman like Dottie, but that idea of the vulnerability, if you like, of the woman to, um, in a big city, particularly, um, to uh, the, the way men behave around her, and all this kind of thing. Um, she does not know her father um, because her mother was a prostitute, to keep it simple. Um, but that the men that come into her life are, are predators of one kind or another. Or if not predators, they're just behaving like men do. Um, and I had in mind at various times, I had in mind uh, the way that, uh, the, way that um, the city figures in um, the writing of somebody like Pasternak or many others who wrote about London. I was living in London at the time when I was writing that. So the city, the woman, you know, coming from that sort of background, 
uh, aspiring in ways that seem ridiculous to uh, ride out of a class, in a sense, or at least the, the um, deprivations that are associated with the class. Well, that's the figure I had for Dotti. Not low esteem, <laughs> but aspiring somehow, aspiring to, to, to get out of something intolerable. So that'll have to be your final words, because we've gone over time now. Uh, and thank you so much thank you. for opening up your books to us, for opening up the world to us. Thank you. And once again, congratulations yes, for the prize. You. Thank you. Thank you. Du har lyttet til en podcast fra det Kongelige Bibliotek. Husk, at du kan abonnere på podcasten i din foretrukne podcast-app. Hvis du kunne lide, hvad du hørte, så del det gerne med andre, der også kunne være interesserede. Hvis du har kommentarer til podcasten, så find Den Sorte Diamant på Facebook, hvor du også kan holde dig orienteret om kommende arrangementer i Diamanten. Podcasten er produceret af Kulturafdelingen på det Kongelige Bibliotek, og musikken er af Søren Jacobsen.